Does your bank support your business while also standing up for the things that matter most to you? If the answer is no, maybe it's time to join an ethical bank. At The Cooperative Bank, we spent 30 years campaigning on issues like climate change and social injustice. And we also offer 30 months free everyday business banking with our Business Direct Plus current account. Join us for business banking. New customers maintaining a credit balance of £1,000. Monthly limits for cash and cheque transactions. Charges may apply for other services. Visit website for details. Subject to status, eligibility and T's and C's. All right, I'm here with Sean Welling, who's spent half of his life in the UK prison system. He's 34 years old. Two years ago, I got a letter from his sister saying Sean was inside. He's looking to write his life story as a book, if I had any advice. So I sent Sean a copy of Stephen King's On Writing. And more recently, we've been in touch, and this is how this has come about. The last prison sentence Sean did, he served 12 years. It was IPP. If you've watched the Pepsi Watson video, he talked about these indeterminate prison sentences, how you go in and you never know when you're coming out. It's kind of like a torture, kind of like a limbo. So what earned you that IPP sentence, Sean? Um, well, the charge was uh, GBH. So GBH, for American viewers who've never heard of that, means what? Uh, grievous body harm. It's basically um, where you've cause damage to a point where you've either like broken bones or cut the skin or something of that nature. Um, so, I mean... What, what were the circumstances that led up to that committing that crime? Um, me, my girlfriend and a friend of hers had been at a party that night. Um, I'd been drinking, taking drugs, cocaine, ecstasy. Um, so uh, we decided to go back to my mum's house, me, my girlfriend and her friend. Uh, after about 10, 15 minutes... So after about 10, 15 minutes, our friend uh, wanted to go home. So um, where I live is down like a little cul-de-sac, like a, a dead-end street. Um, and the taxi normally misses it, normally goes to the other address on the next street. So I said to them to go and make the top of the cut. And 15, 20 minutes had gone by. Um, I tried to phone the phone, no answer. Um, so I'm, think I'm not thinking rationally at this point. I'm thinking... You know, maybe something's happened to her. Um, you know, so I've gone into the kitchen and got a knife out, um, which, you know, was a, a stupid mistake and a, and a silly idea at the time. But at the time, I was felt, you know, that maybe I didn't know what situation I was going to run into. So um, I've gone to look for her. And as I've come to the top of the road, uh, I've looked to my left and I can see her uh, with just kind of a leg sticking out of the taxi drawer. But at the time, I didn't know it was a taxi. I just thought that someone was trying to pull her into a car. I didn't see a friend anywhere. So, I mean, you know, if I hadn't been uh, taking drugs and alcohol, you would look at it rationally and you, you'd understand the situation. But, I mean, for people who maybe think, well, you know, what would then make you think or want to go and do what I did? But at the time, I wasn't thinking rationally. And um, so I ran up to the car, pulled my girlfriend out of the window and... Uh, I attacked the driver, which at the time I didn't know was a taxi driver. Um, uh, he ended up with quite a few cuts on his face and his hands and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's kind of what got me wound up with the IPP sentence. Were you arrested right away? Um, I was arrested about two, three days later. Yeah. What was the circumstances of the arrest? Um, circumstances of the arrest was I'd been laying low. My girlfriend had been arrested that time with her friend. They both got arrested at the scene. Um, 
Now, what were they charged with? They wasn't charged with anything. They was just interviewed. Um, they was, I mean, at the time, the police didn't know that it was me. Um, it was only when I knew she was in the police station, she phoned me. She didn't, they took her clothes and everything off her and gave her uh, like a white paper suit. Um, they took her clothes for like DNA evidence or whatever, but um, she wasn't charged with anything. She was released, but um, the mistake I made was uh, I asked my mum to go and drop her some clothes off at the police station. Now, the, uh, the police officer who came out knew me and he knew my mum. So he's then thinking, putting two and two, two and two together, thinking like, why is Sean's mum bringing this girl? And then they started asking her, do you know Sean Welling? And, you know, she did deny it. She said, I don't know him and stuff. But um, at that point, then I knew that they was looking for me. So I laid low. Um, I was staying at my nan's house, which was just around the corner from um, where I was living. And... What happened was, is the police didn't know I was there. The, my sister was walking down the street. She was heavily pregnant at the time. And CID, four of them were skidded up in a car, um, which CID, like for American views, is like plainclothes police officers. Um, and they started shouting her, getting in her face, saying, we know Sean's got a car. We, we're going to ram him off the road when we see him. So my sister, she got, she panicked and she, you know, she obviously scared her. So she said, let me try and get hold of him and see if we can get him to hand himself in and um, the copper gave her the phone. So she put the number in, rang my nan's number, and then he's grabbed the phone off her. Um, but my nan, bless you, know she's dead now, but she, you know, when the copper was saying to her, uh, is Sean there and stuff, you know, she she was on the ball enough to say, no, he's not here and stuff. You know, she's like 80-something years old, you know. So, um, and then the, I heard a knock at the door, this was maybe an hour later and I've looked out and I see two police officers at the front and two at the back. And, you know, my, my nan, bless her, you know, she's got a little, uh, like, stair thing, like stair lift. You know, she's basically gone from the living room, went and sat on a stair lift and, like, pretended that no one was there. But, um, you know, in the end, you know, they basically said, look, don't make us kick the door in. I didn't want them to keep my nan's door in. So, you know, I kind of put my hands up and said, look, you know, I'll, I'll come out. Um, so that was the circumstance of the arrest. Where did they take you next? Um, they took me to police station, um, where they interviewed me. Um, at the time I denied, I denied what had happened. Um, I mean, the evidence that they had, they, they had, um, me getting out at a petrol station around the corner. The taxi driver asked him to pull up on the way back to my, to my mum's house to get some cigarettes. And, uh, they had that video. So they had some like evidence against me, but that was basically it. They didn't have any other evidence. But I mean, was the know, taxi driver able to identify you? Um, he he picked me out in the ID parade, but he said he was only eighty five percent sure. But they still took that as a positive identification. Yeah. So your police station, you're getting processed, and then they're gonna put you in a remand jail. Uh, yeah. I mean, there'd just been a new prison built in Peterborough. Um, so. Uh, they accept 18 years and over. It's not like um, where, like, over here you have, like, your 15 to 18-year-old, then your 18-year-old to 21. But Peterborough accepted anybody over 18. Uh, so I was that was the first time that I was in the adult system. I'd been used to, like, you know, gladiator school, uh, YOs and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, for me it was a different experience. It, it was It was a lot more calm. 
compared to like your YO prisons. Um, but yeah, I mean, not to say that I like prison or anything, but I liked it a lot better than being in like the juvenile system. It was, you know, you're around people, you're around adults, even though you're in prison and people act daft and like children sometimes, but it was still, uh, it was, yeah, it was a lot quieter. So it sounds like there were some situations in the young offenders' prisons. What kind of stuff was going on there? Um, I mean, every time I go in and out, you know, you'd probably be involved in at least two or three fights. Um, uh, I mean, you know, people are testing you as soon as you, like, walk through the doors, you know, especially in, like, your 15, like, your juvenile establishments. establishments. Um, So, yeah, I mean... I got involved in quite a few fights in Young Offenders. I mean, the sort of things that they were over, you know, sometimes real real stupidness. People, you know, you might be talking to someone one minute, next minute, you know, they're telling you to suck your mum. I mean, obviously, American viewers, they are, I don't know whether they know what that means or not. It basically, basically means like, you know, I don't even really want to say it. but it's, it, Yeah, it's, it's like... Go and suck your mum is basically like go and eat your mum out, basically. Right. Yeah. That's that's my interpretation of it. Yeah. And you know that's basically you're fighting. Yeah. You know you but if you're back down from that situation, then you're just going to get victimised through your whole sentence. And I mean, uh, the first time I ever went to prison, I was 15. Yeah. Um, and how did that feel going in for the first time? Yeah, I was scared. I was scared the first time I went to prison. You know, what were you in for? Uh, I think that time was a driving offence, a driving while disqualified or something of that nature. And yeah, you know, I was shitting myself. I was. I mean, anyone who goes through the first time and says they're not worried, they're lying. They're lying. Yeah, that's what I think anyway. You know, everyone's not necessarily like scared, but you're obviously anxious. You know, people go in there, they're anxious. And I think that's where the, like, the chest sticking out comes from. Like everyone's, it's like people are trying to keep everyone away from them. So by acting like big, hard, tough nut, like you think that people are going to leave you alone. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I, I was scared first time I went to prison. What was the name of that prison and what was the first day like? Um, the name of that prison was uh, Warren Hill Hollissey Bay. Um, it's an adult prison now, but back then it was... Um, first time I went there, it was... They had four units. They had Old and Orwell, which were your juvenile... 15, 17, then you had uh, Deben and Gippin, which were 18 to 21s. Now, the name of the units there, I think Rivers around the local Ipswich area. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the first day was, you know, you'll come in, um, you know, I, 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 I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know how to act. I didn't know, you know, if I should try and put on this bravado of like I'm not scared and big tough nut or whatever, but you know, yeah, it's it was a. Uh, I mean, the first day was quite quiet actually, and I thought to myself, this isn't so bad. Were you assigned to a cell or a dorm? I or? was assigned to a cell. Um, one just one person in each cell. Oh, you got your own cell. Yeah, own cell. Yeah. And were the other guys coming up to you, checking you out? Um, I mean, f- first day was quite quiet, but the second day, I mean, you got people shouting you, asking you where you're from, what's your name. Uh, and then straight away, people are, they're testing you. They're like, trying, trying to bust your cheeks? Yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know about busting cheeks, but yeah, I'm a professional cheek buster. Yeah. Big hack! I am now anyway. Yeah, big, Shout yeah, out big, big, big hack. Big hack. <laughs> <laughs> big hack. 
<laughs> so yeah, it's um, what kind of shit they're saying to you then? I mean, in in the beginning, it's sort of, you know, I don't know. It's I'm trying to think back then. It's a long time. It's a it? long time ago, yeah. but it's just sort of things to test you, and then they might go to the next level. They've tested you one bit. You either you know you fail or you pass, and you know. Was it like did you did you watch the interview I did with Pepsi Watson? He was describing. Yes, yeah, it's exactly, like it's, it's exactly the same yeah. as how Pepsi Watson said. I mean, it's it is like you're being tested straight away. You know, no matter who you are. You know, so it's, um, and yeah, I was scared the first time, you know, the first, and I used to count down the days, like I'd tick them off on like my board, but that felt like the longest sentence I ever did. Even this sentence now, that first sentence felt longer than what I did this time. So you said the first day was relatively mellow. Yeah. When did it get crazy? A second day. What happened? Um, from what I can remember, someone came to my door and I think it was, it was telling me something like, oh, I want this off you or that. And again, I didn't, you know, I, I was, I was scared at that point. You, you know? wanted some of your property. They wanted some of my property. And I mean, I can't remember what had come in from the outside of some toilet shoes and stuff. And, you know, I'm basically, you know, saying I'm not going to do that. So he's basically said to me along the lines of when you come out of your song, I'm going to punch your head in then. So again, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know what to do in this situation. I've never really been in this situation before. Um, so, you know, I didn't bring the items out. Nothing happened that day. And then from then on, it was kind of, it was quite relatively quiet apart from a couple of occasions where I got into fights with people. And again, it could just be, you know, you're in your cell, mind your own business. Someone might shout you and just, just start trying to, you know, talk shit to you. So, um, what was the first of those fights? Um, my next door neighbour and he told me to suck my mum yeah so that was that was what the first fight was about basically that I mean and it was caused by somebody else trying to you know trying to get two people to fight to have a little bit of laugh over it the old okie dog yeah exactly yeah. so so yeah me and him ended up fighting uh, and that was the first time I experienced getting locked up by the by the guards so to settle a dispute there then settle a fight where I was housed for example if two people had a beef, they would be told to go and squash the beef, fight in the cell under the stairs. This was in the county jail. Was there a procedure there where you fight out where the guards, where they wouldn't see it and stop it or anything? No, people were just, you know, when I when I came out, he said to me, come into his cell. But at that point in, in that prison where, where I was at in Warren Hill, you'd have like one screw unlocking and you'd have one at the end of the, uh, at the end of the corridor watching, watching for people. If you go in anyone's cell, they're coming straight down to see what you're doing. So I've gone into the cell, started fighting with him, and then the screws will come in, split us up. And, you know, as I said, that was the first time I experienced being, like, getting locked up. You know, as Pepsi said as well, like, they do literally, it feels like, you know, I felt like I was going to pass out. Like, that pain was shooting through me, like, where they grab your thumbs, and, you know, they do, like, they're trying to touch, like, your arm with your thumb. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's painful. You know, I was seeing stars first time I got locked up like that. And I thought to myself, I don't want that situation to happen again. But, you know, it's it's a situation where you either you either do something or you don't do something. If you don't do anything, then your time is just going to be so much harder. You know, every day people are going to be testing you or people are going to be demanding canteen off you, items, stuff like that. So, I mean, 
you know, after like, you know, if, if people realise that you're not going to back down, you're going to fight, it's people do start to leave you alone. You know, so. So after that fight, you got sent to lockdown in yeah. the hole. Yeah. What was the hole like? Um, uh, basically, I'm trying to I'm trying to think if it was Warren Hill that you basically just have a con concrete slab on the floor. They take your mattress away from you in the daytime. Um, you've got like a cardboard chair and table. Uh, no Card TV. Cardboard a chair cardboard chair and table. Yeah, <laughs> literally made out of cardboard, like out of boxes. Um, so yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, you, you lock down for. 23 hours a day roughly you know you maybe come out for a shower um i don't even think they did exercise at that point um so yeah well it's not it's not nice anyway how it's many days nice. were in the hole um as far as i can remember i was down there for three days and i was put back on the wing i mean at that point i don't think juveniles were allowed to be given such a long time in like in in the block in the hole um but yeah, I, I was down there for three days. And when I was put back on the wing, I had stuff like loss of canteen. Um, uh, you don't have no TVs. There's no electric. In, there's electric for the light in the cell, but you haven't got any plugs or anything like that. So, yeah. So coming back onto the run, did, was there like a newfound respect for you now? You've had a fight and you've been to the hole. Um, I mean, not necessarily after that first fight, but when I had the second fight, okay, that which was a couple of weeks later, you know, I, you start to notice that people do start to have a bit more respect for you. You know, people know that you're not going to take any bullshit. But then on the flip side of it, people can sometimes use it to their advantage where they know that you're going to bite. So they'll set up a situation where they know you're going to bite and just for their amusement, you know. And what were the circumstances of the second fight? Um, I, off the top of my head, I cannot remember, Sean. But, I mean, it'd probably be something similar, some words being said and then uh, a fight happening and, yeah. Was that another one back to the hole? Um, I think again, I was down block for a couple of days, down the hole, and then back on the wing again. Loss of canteen, loss of this and that. So yeah. So how are you adapting? Um, what now? I'm out here now. No, just as a as a young offender to okay. the institution. Um, I mean, yeah. After the first time I went to prison, it you know. I came out of prison thinking oh, I'm a big tough guy, hard nut, you know, I've been to prison, so on and so forth. And um yeah, I mean, looking back now, I you know, I was just a daft, you know, young kid who did silly things and you know, until it kind of went on to the violent sort of things. When I was that age, most of my offences were like driving offences. Um, I, I love driving. That's my thing, I love to drive. And, you know, that was uh, I got banned when I was 14 years old I didn't even have a license but I'm banned from driving so you know if I'm pulled over it's driving whilst it's qualified you're getting arrested and the police would they would do it on purpose a lot of the times they'd arrest me on a Friday not give me bail full well knowing they'd keep me in all weekend and then take me to court Monday and then they know the magistrates are going to let me out but they'd do it anyway I haven't had I never had a Christmas or a New Year's out since 2000 well, since, sorry, since when I got out in 2017. That was the first time that I had a Christmas or New Year's out. I remember my mum bringing me up Christmas dinner in the police station. This was when you was allowed to have stuff brought in. Um, now you're not allowed to have anything brought up. But yeah, I remember them passing me like the, the turkey still on, you know, and that went on for a few years. And yeah. 
So how many years did you do before the big sentence then in all these other places? Uh, roughly about four years. About four about years. About four years and that was split up in between a few different sentences. How did that affect you and how did it change you as a person just going in so young? Um, yeah, I mean, at that age, you're, you know, you're that's kind of your growing up years and I kind of grew up in the system. So that kind of, I wouldn't say that I'm institutionalised, but I was adapted to that way of living. You know, uh, and it's get to a point where every time you go into prison, you're not worried. You're not worried about how long you're going to get what's, you know, what you've been arrested for. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I adapted sort of in the wrong way. Um, but then again, you know, it's you're being brought up in a system where you're being forced, like gladiator school, so you're forced to be so... If anything happens outside, you still act in that way. So you kind of, if someone is uh, like aggressive or says something to you, you, you try and like lock that down straight away the same way as you would in prison. Um, but I mean, as I got older, I kind of, you mature anyway. Like, and I kind of got to a point where, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't that person anymore. I wasn't. You know, probably in my mid twenties when I started to calm down. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that you know young lad anymore, walking around, sticking his chest out, thinking that, you know, he's big herc and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So, cheek busting and all stuff. But yeah, going back, <laughs> going back then to the big sentence. So you described how you got arrested, and you're in this Peterborough prison now, yeah. I think, and you're going to court. What are they saying in court about the situation? Um, yeah, when I got arrested, I was uh, remanded into the prison. And I think I went back to court maybe six or eight weeks later. Um, and I was, I wanted, my barrister wanted me to go for bail. So I was trying to get bail. Now, um, the first time I attempted to get bail, basically said no. Um, but the second time I went back was maybe about four weeks later. Another bail hearing. Uh, my barrister came down into cells and said to me, he wanted to get me on quick because he said the prosecutor didn't really know anything about my case. So he wanted me to get on quick so the prosecutor would not really be able to put his best foot forward. So, um, yeah, the judge basically uh, said to the prosecutor, he said, well, what is the evidence against this man? And when he said it, he said, well, what's the girls saying? Did they say they know him and... and he said no. So he said, well, what evidence, apart from a dodgy, uh, uh, what you would call 85% ID parade and then a dodgy, uh, you know, like obviously the, the camera evidence proves that I was in the taxi going home, but it didn't prove that I was the guy who committed it. I mean, there was um, a woman who called the police near the incident who, um, you know, she knows me quite well. And she basically said that she didn't recognise the person it was. So at that point, I'm thinking to myself that, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bust this one. I'm gonna get out. Um, so I ended up getting bail, but I wasn't allowed to stay in Peterborough. I had to go and stay at my auntie's in Derby, um, which is maybe eighty miles away from Peterborough. Or so um, I had, I had a curfew. I think I had to be in by seven o'clock at night. Um, I wasn't allowed to travel anywhere by taxi. Um, I wasn't allowed in any licensed premises. So they had quite a lot of stuff that, you know, on me and the police would come and check every night to make sure I was in. Um, but I ended up breaching 
the bail conditions. So I got sent back to the prison for a while. How did you breach? Um, going back to Peterborough. I came to Peterborough. I, I asked their permission, can I come to Peterborough for the day to see my nan and family? They said, yeah. And when I came down, I didn't go back. Because where my auntie lives, it's kind of like a quiet town. And I wasn't used to that. I was, it was too quiet for me. So I just basically decided I weren't going to go back. Um, ended up getting high that night drinking. Um, what what level of drug activity are you involved in at this stage? Um, I mean, I would call it recreational. I mean, now and again, I'd have a bit of cocaine or XC tablets. But, you know, I wasn't, there wasn't any daily sort of drug use. Yeah. And when you read Party Time, and you, about me taking yeah, XC and stuff. Buy that book. <laughs> All the books. <laughs> so, all right, so you're breaching now, you're going back, and um, what is it like when you go back? Um, it's It's just like the realisation of what you're doing, you know, it's you're thinking to yourself like, oh, but you know, I'm back again. Like, what am I doing? You know, I could have been out now, but because stupid me didn't want to go back. I mean, but at that age, I just wasn't. I didn't have that maturity where I would look at situations in a in a rational way. I'd just think to myself, oh, they're not gonna they're not gonna go and check that I've gone back. But that night they did go. They went and checked, and I wasn't there. So, um, I think I was in again for a couple of months. But because I hadn't committed an offence. To go back in, the judge bait or probate, uh, prosecution said that they were happy for letting me go back on bail again. Um, same conditions and stuff. So I got released again on bail and then stupid me again, breached the bail conditions again. And it was at that point where uh, they won't give me bail again. So I knew like, that's it. Unless I get a not guilty on this, I'm in prison. But at this point, I didn't know anything about IPP sentence. Had no like inkling of it at all. Um so, I mean, moving forward a little bit, where I'd been found guilty on on, on the charge after a trial, um, barrister. Oh, there was a trial. I went for a trial. Yeah, how did yeah. that feel? Because I think not not many people go for trial in Arizona. Where I'm housed. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd been through trial before. Have you? Okay. I'd, I'd just been for a previous trial where um, me and a friend of mine uh, we'd got a not guilty, and that was on. Uh, an attempted robbery of a shop or in a shop, should I say. Um, but we got not guilty on that. I mean, the situation, I'm not going to go into it too much, but the situation, um, we hadn't really done what they said we'd done. Um, but anyway, we got released on that after a trial again. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the beginning of the trial, I thought that I was going to go home. You know, I wasn't thinking about what I'd done. You know, I wasn't thinking about uh, how this guy's feeling I wasn't thinking about how his family's feeling and stuff so I was just being selfish and thinking about me that like, I want to go home like I don't want to be here but at the end of the day you know I deserve to be where I was so you know I, I you know I'm a big believer in karma and I think that all that time that I did I think that made up for all the stuff that I got away for yeah so that's the way I see it and I think to myself that my slate's clean now did, 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 anyway. did the trial look like it was going in your favour or against you? It looked like it was going in my favour. I went through two trials. The first tri two trials. Yeah, I went through two trials. The first trial, um, they couldn't come to a conclusion. Um, Why was that? They, you have basically in the beginning, um, they want where all the jury members have got to agree. 
But after a while, the judge will say, we'll go for a majority verdict, which means a certain amount of jury members, if, you know, they need, I think it's maybe nine or whatever, to, and then you'll be found guilty if they say yes. But they couldn't come to a conclusion. So what they, it was what they call a hung jury. Um, so, yeah, that's what happened. And then I went through a second trial. And in this second trial, uh, one of the jury members was kicked off the jury because what he'd done, he'd basically gone and do an investigation himself of some of the evidence that had been said. So he he came into court and he told, he said to the judge, basically, look, this is what I've done. So the judge said, well, you can't stay. He said, have you told the other jury members about what you've learned about this? So I mean, he said, no, but I thought to myself, you must have mentioned something. And the evidence that he was looking at was where I live. I said I ran down what well, I said um, because the way that I was trying to put it across was that it must have been somebody else because uh, the taxi driver said the guy ran down where I live down. It's called so it's a dead end. Uh, I said at the bottom of there you can. Um, I said you can jump over the fence, and I said there's a gate that you can go through. But little did I know that there's a padlock on that gate. And this just jury member's gone investigating and he's obviously seen that it's got a padlock on it and you can't get through there. So, so yeah, the, jury, the judge kicked him off. So they ended up with 11 jury members. But uh, it basically took them three days to come to a conclusion that I was guilty. And the question that they last asked was, um, do we have to be 100% sure? Or do we just have to be, they said, how do we judge reasonable doubt? The judge said, you don't have to be 100% sure. He said, you just have to be sure beyond what you think reasonable doubt is. Five minutes later, I get found guilty. So it was that question that, you know, again, they couldn't come to a conclusion. But yeah. What was your sentencing hearing like? Uh, yeah, again, like my legs were probably, you know, I'd never been in that situation before where I, I, I knew that I was expecting a bit, a, a decent sentence, you know, possibly a parole sentence, which is like over four years back then it was um so yeah it's um i was stood in the dock and again i'd only just been told about this ipp sentence but i said to my brother so i'm not going to get that am i he said i don't think so and the judge said uh you know i'm going to give you an ipp sentence indeterminate sentence um with a tariff of one year 248 days because they calculated by taking off my remand time and so, yeah, so I thought to myself, oh, that's not too bad. I thought I'll maybe be out after like two years, three years or whatever. And that's when I then hit the prison system. And then after four years, five years, six years, seven years, you start thinking to yourself, what am I doing wrong here? You know, I was, it wasn't like I was running around stabbing people or getting involved in fights or stuff like that, you know, um, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm an angel and, uh, you know, I did probably knock myself back by a few years, but that was down to drug use. And that was down to, um, initially, um, I'd been playing football and I went over on my ankle. And at the time I didn't know, but I, I'd actually fractured my ankle, but they didn't take me out to the hospital. So, you know, I was in quite a lot, I was in a lot of pain and... Um, you know, all they was offering me was paracetamol and ibuprofen, but that wasn't touching it. So I started going around the wing looking for other stronger medication, uh, stuff like tramadol and stuff like that, and ended up 
you know, kind of self-medicating. And so, yeah, I mean, I got to a point where I then became addicted to that medication. Um, and that's when I started going on to, you know, if I couldn't find any, uh, like, uh, tablets or whatever, I, you know, I smoke heroin or stuff like that. I mean, I know it might sound like it's a big jump, but when you've got a habit and you're starting to get that sickness, you know. So many people end up getting into heroin yeah. through painkillers. Uh, right now in America, there's an absolute epidemic of yeah. this. Yeah. I had a cellmate who lived a completely normal life. Um, he was working construction or something, driving vehicles, and um, just got into a car accident, got hooked on the painkillers. They cut him off. He started going on the street, drugs and heroin. Yeah. Lost his job, lost his family, lost lost absolutely everything. He had cancer as well when he yeah. was my son. He yeah. was vomiting blood, and he he was going to die pretty soon. So yeah, it can just um, grab you like that. So first time you smoke heroin in prison, mm -hmm. what's that feel like? I wanted to be sick. You wanted to be sick. Yeah, I wanted to vomit, but I mean. You know, after that initial sickness when, you know, I had that feeling of pain's gone. Yeah. But then also I got that feeling of, you know, this is nice. I can forget about, you know, my problems that are going on. Uh, you know, you kind of get into a situation where you feel that relaxed. You're like in a bubble. I felt like I was in a bubble, like I was relaxed. I was floating. I was, you know, I didn't have to think about any of my problems. And... You know, that's when I, you know, over a few years, I got hooked on heroin quite badly. Um, this is what the prisoners I was housed with told me, because 90% were shooting up heroin. Yeah. A lot of them were traumatized as kids, mm -hmm. and then they got long sentences, so they re-traumatized. Then they're treated like animals yeah. in the prison system. Yeah. And the only way to conk themselves out of that zone and just not have to fucking think about it or deal with it was to do heroin. Mm -hmm. They're completely gone then and they're not, yeah. all, all the stress, all the worry, everything, it's yeah. temporarily shelved. Yeah, that's right. So that's what you felt. That's what I felt. But then, you know, once you get to a point where you've got a habit and you haven't got it and, you know, maybe you might owe someone a thousand pounds or whatever. Now, you haven't paid any of that money off, but you're sick, you need to get something. So, you know, matey's not going to give you anything. So you go and see someone else and you start racking up a bill with him. You know, there was a time when I owed maybe two and a half thousand pounds out, you know, and that that's even more stress then because you've then got to pay that debt off. But also you've got to make sure that you're not sick. And especially if you're sick and someone's, you know, you know that someone's looking to do something to you because you ain't paid your debt, then, you know, you're in big trouble because you ain't going to be able to fight. If you're if you're rattling, you're clucking sick, you know, you're, you're not going to be in a situation where you're going to be able to defend yourself. Have you gone from smoking it to injecting it? No, I've never injected. Okay. No, I've never injected. I've only ever smoked it. And how are the drugs getting in? Uh, guards bringing it in. Uh, people are getting it on visits. Um, so how corrupted were the guards? Um, I mean, it depends. You know, it depends what varies from prison to prison. But in Peterborough prison, I mean, ninety percent of the guards would. You know, either the females were getting their cheeks busted or, like, they're, they're bringing parcels in or the male guards are bringing parcels in. Um, and I say, like, 90%. And a lot of them are new, you know. A lot of them are fresh. They maybe worked, I don't know, uh, Tesco's or somewhere of that nature. They haven't got that, 
they've never worked in a prison before. They don't really know how to act or what to do. But yeah, yeah. So there's quite a lot of... Um, there's a lot of corruption. Guards bringing stuff. Yeah, a hell of a lot of corruption. Yeah. yeah. So how are you like raising money? Are you, you got a hostel or anything? Uh, what now? Like No, like oh, in prison, then. like some people tattoo, some people, you know, run a store, some people trade yeah. tobacco. Uh, Have you got a hustle? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was getting drugs in at one point, you know, myself. Um, that was early on in my sentence. Um, and that was at a point where uh, I'd been placed on close visits, so I was speaking to you about earlier. And, you know, I was still managing to bring the drugs in, even on the close visits. How um, was that then? Uh, basically in Peterborough prison uh, where you've got your clothes visits you've got like your glass bit of glass and then you've got your shelf that comes out and a bit of wood underneath uh, and then you've got like putty that goes up the side now somebody had cut through the putty and there was about that much gap in between each like metal rod so it had been cut through this side and then the other person had cut through their side so I mean I was getting drugs through there for for ages like when I was I didn't want to come off clothes visits because you know, you haven't got to worry about getting caught on a visit because you ain't got no one watching you. There's no cameras in there. So, yeah, I mean, but apart from that, I mean, you know, friends helped me out a lot with money. That was me. That was my main thing. You know, like I'd call in on friends, you know, ask for a bit of money or whatever. But, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say maybe I went through maybe 40 or 50,000 pounds on drugs in prison. Grief. Yeah. A lot, a lot of money. So the drugs that you're getting in, you were selling them as well? I was selling some to get a bit of money back and then also, um, you know, I was just trying to keep my habit going. And was that a hassle? Were people trying to rip you off? Um, I mean, you've always got, you're always going to get somebody who, you know, wants to play the goat and try and, but that's, that comes with the territory. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to do that, you've got to expect people are going to, you know, you know, the way I've seen it in prison is that it doesn't matter how big you are, it doesn't matter how many people you got behind you? If someone wants something, you know, you might have some little nine stone guy who's hooked on heroin, but at the same time, he wants his fix. So, you know, you might walk around the wing chest out thinking you're hard, but then two minutes later, the guy's put a coffee jar around your head and he's nicked your parcel. So I never was under the illusion that no, no one can do that to me or whatever, because I'd seen it happen. So um, I was just very careful with who I dealt with. I'd only deal with a few people. Um, but the majority, I took myself to like feed my habit. But then again, my habit raised; it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. But um, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been on the methadone program a couple of times in prison as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, at one point, for the majority of my time in prison in Gartry, they didn't do like a detox program. Um, that came in about 2012. I was one of the first ones on it and I'd been on the the, the program twice. Um, but yeah. I what mean, does that, that entail, a detox program? Uh, basically, um, you know, you have to see the doc, you, you'll see like what they call is like a start team or carrots, which is like a drug. You love like, uh, they're not psychologists, but they're like, they're workers and they will basically, you know, you'll, you'll be assigned one anyway. They'll come and see you every now and again. And they will basically, if, if you say to them, look, I've got a habit, I want to get off the drugs. So you have to give like a couple of urine samples just to prove that you are actually on that drug because the last thing they want to do is go and give you a dose of methadone and you haven't 
you know, you haven't got any, you haven't been using heroin or any opiates and you, they give you an overdose. So you have to prove that you've been using. And um, then, yeah, basically then they'll just put you on a small dose, maybe five or 10 mil to start off with and then gradually build you up. Um, and then, you know, over a period of time, they'll get you stable. So where you're not feeling sick and then um, they'll start reducing you slowly. And, uh, you know, I went through that program twice. First time I failed it. But second time I was a lot more serious about it and I ended up getting off the drugs. But I'm not saying that, you know, I've been an angel since then and I haven't used any drugs I have. But, you know, well, I mean, like, I, I, I was always really against, like, heroin and stuff like that. But when you're in that situation where maybe years have gone past and you're thinking to yourself, like, you don't know when... If they'd have said to me, you've got 20 years, I would rather have them said to me, you're going to do 20 years and you're going to go home because at least you know when you're going home. You know, with the, with the IPP in the term of sentence, you don't know when you're going home. And that's the that's the hard bit about it. Yeah, I was on sentence for 26 months. Yeah. And the violence, the cockroaches, nothing compared to just not knowing when yeah. you're ever going to get out. Yeah. It's that uncertainty mm -hmm. just gnaws away at your brain every every all the time it just yeah. it just never stops does yeah, it that's right yeah so i can't imagine for you to go all those years over a decade in that situation the psychological torture mm -hmm. yeah what were the worst things you saw then in prison um i mean there, there was there's kind of a couple of situations that stick out uh one i saw somebody and um, get a pan of hot oil thrown over them. Over hot them. oil. Hot oil. Now, this is, you know, someone's... Because in a lot of prisons, you're able... They, they have, like, a, a kitchen area, mainly in, like, your long-term prisons. Because where I was at Gartry, it's just a lifers' prison. Um, they did a documentary there a few years ago. I was on that for a little bit. I don't know whether you've seen it. Is it on YouTube? Uh, no, they, they won't allow you to view the video no more for some reason, but... Mm. I was on there for a, a little snippet anyway, but um, well, what was I talking about again? Worst things you saw. <laughs> oh, worst there was, things, there was sorry. A, there was a few. Sorry, I floated off then to the... Um, yeah, somebody got hot oil thrown over them. Now, it's a horrible thing to see because the, the skin, it, it just it just melts, falls off. It's horrible. It is nasty and, you know... Where was it on the face? On the face and like on the neck. So all this, then the, the, the so the skin is just it's just melting off. It's horrible. Um, I've what had that person done? Did they owe money or something? I I don't know what they've done, but I mean, where I was at in Gartry, it's it's a very relaxed place, um, but you've got people in there doing. Everyone's got a life sentence or IPP. You've got some people in there doing twenty five, twenty like. 20 years, 30 years or whatever. And, um, you know, they don't care. Mm. If a situation happens, they'll do whatever. You know, I've seen people get hot water thrown over them with sugar in. Um, I've seen people get stabbed. Um, yeah, I've seen fights where, you know, people are jumping up and down on people's heads and stuff. So, yeah, some serious, naughty stuff, yeah. Why was the guy getting his head jumped on? Um, I think it, it was something again it was over something that was quite uh, silly something had been said by one person to another person but where this other person he's 
you know, he's he's in a bit of a gang. So he's got all his buddies to help him. So they've gone and beat him up, like maybe about 10 of them. And, you know, you know, people are then, then jumping up and down on his head. And again, that's not a nice thing to see. When you say gangs, how's the gang structured in Peterborough? Um, I mean, it's not really, I wouldn't say it's like gangs like you've got in America. It's a lot more informal. Uh, I'm not saying that there's not gangs in, in the country because there is. I mean, in London, places like, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool Birmingham, you know, they've got they've got their gangs. But I mean, uh, within the prison system, you've got a lot of it is like where you're from. So you have like your London lads, they'll stick together. And then you have like your Birmingham lads, they'll stick together. Um, so yeah, it's it's based mainly on where you're from. You know, whereas like in the American system, like you Rach, make, racial it's games. racial. Yeah, over yeah. here, like you have white, Asian, blacks all together. Doesn't matter what what if they're from what the same area. It's just, it's more about from like the same area. Yeah. yeah. And what are the gang rules in the UK prison system? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say there's like any structured like rules, but it's like you got like your unwritten rules, which obviously like there's no snitching. Um. Sex offenders. Yeah, stuff like that. Like, yeah, like your nonces, your sex offenders, stuff like that. It's, you know, that's not tolerated. And I mean, over here in like the British prison system, stuff like uh, people getting raped and stuff like that, it doesn't really happen. You know, in all my time in prison, I've never, ever, ever seen or heard of anybody being raped. Never. So, I mean, and I've done... 16 years in, in the system I've never seen or heard I'm not saying that it doesn't happen I mean don't get me wrong uh, you know you, you may have like uh, a few gay guys who you know they're doing their thing but there's no one forcing like anybody to do something against their will seems to vary all over the world you just joined us for lunch with Carl Williams yeah. who was in prison in Dubai mm -hmm. and one of the prisons that he was at people just getting bombed left and right and mm -hmm. there was all these Young people have been, been arrested for spice, <laughs> and um, all these, Sorry, these all these spice kids were just getting. It was, it was like it was crazy how the way he described it, as if it was just going on all the time. Yeah, yeah. what do you mean spice? What smoking spice? Yeah, all the spice. These kids have been arrested for spice, but okay. they were going get put into prison. Yeah, and they weren't like hardened criminals, but they yeah. were getting raped then, left yeah, and yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that's a big thing that's like messed the prison system up. Is like spice. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't witnessed it before about 2013 mm. and it just flooded the prison system and, you know, again, it's not nice to see people twitching on the floor and you'll get people who are spiking people. They'll be like, you know, they might roll up a spliff with a bit of weed at the front and then put spice at the back and say to someone, oh, do you want to have a smoke of that? Next minute, the person's, you know, twitching on the floor or whatever and they stood there laughing, you know, so it's... Did you try spice? Uh, I tried spice once. What never did it, how again. did it make you feel? Horrible. Horrible. I literally walked around for an hour looking at the floor because every time I looked up it looked like everything was getting further away. And yeah, it wasn't a nice experience. I tried it once and never again. So you were in prison for so long, you must have had had some interesting neighbours or cellmates. Any of the more memorable people that you met? Um What were their stories? I mean, it's, it's hard to think. I mean, there's so many kind of individual, 
like characters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've met like people of all sorts of different characters, different you know, different backgrounds, different stories. Um, you know, there's some people in for some really horrible murders. What were the most horrible murders that you heard of? Um, the one that I'm going to speak about now is it's probably it's not like one of the worst ones but it's because it's local to me in Peterborough um, there was this girl who she was a working girl and um, what what her thing was is that she wouldn't do business with the guy she'd pretend she was going to do it but then she'd get the money and run off so she was a prostitute was yeah. faking and then taking the money yeah and but this one night this guy um, who I ended up being archery with but I didn't know at the time what he was in for and he basically uh, he basically scalped her but not with a knife with his hands pulling her hair out that hard that he basically scalped her scalped her just he, ripped her he hair he basically off. ripped all her hair off because she took his money because she took his money um, he then stabbed her I think numerous times and the girl ended up dying um, but yeah I mean because I knew the girl you know, she used to live around the corner from where I live and, mm. you know, I, I kind of grew up knowing her and, but that guy, he actually, he was in Whitemore, which is high security prison. Um, uh, but he ended up getting slashed on his face for something. I don't know what, mm. but um, to me, that's kind of like karma. You know, you do something like that. That's not, that's not excusable. There's no, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, what I did isn't, isn't bad, but compared to that, that's, that's like next level stuff. Yeah. Um, Any other horrific um, criminals that you encountered? Um, I mean, not necessarily horrific, but sentences that people got. Like I what? Mean, uh, there was a lad in Gartry who he had, he was a life sentence, but he had a tariff for 33 years, you know, so, and he was probably in his 30s, mid 30s. Um, basically, they had um, gone to somebody's house who they thought had something in the house, I think a safe or whatever. And they've tied him up, tortured him a bit, but the guy ended up dying. Um, but yeah, he got 33 years for that. And there was a group of them, you know, they all got big sentences, but it wasn't that the murder was kind of horrific, but nowadays the kind of sentences they're handing out for like gang murders or like shootings and stuff has risen from maybe 15 years to 20 years. People are getting like, 30 years there's people I know who are in for um, what they call this thing called joint enterprise um, a good friend of mine he, he had been sentenced on that where he was just present at the scene he hadn't done anything but because he wasn't in the in the dock or in the, in the witness box against his friend because he basically stuck to his friend and said backed him up you know he ended up getting I think 17 year tariff for nothing didn't do anything whatsoever. He was just present when something happened. Didn't know it was going to happen, but it ended up happening. And there's many people in there. You know, there's that, and then you've got the IPP. I mean, there's lads. I mean, going from like worse things to like silly things. There's people who are in for maybe punching somebody once and ended up getting an IPP sentence, doing 10, 12 years for nothing. Not for nothing, but for punching somebody, you know? Is there any ways that these IPP guys, including yourself, uh, try and cope with that, not knowing? Um, I mean, I went through different stages of coping. I mean, there was times when I got stuck into the gym. Um, 
uh, drugs was a big part of it, you know. I'd say drugs is probably the main thing that people use to cope. You know, it's there's only so long that a human can bear something without it, you know, you get to a point where you just you snap and you can't take no more, you know. And I don't, I don't feel like any shame admitting that because that's how it is. You know, it's um everyone's got their breaking point. You know, I had my breaking point and, uh, you know, I got over that breaking point and went back again and, you know, but... What caused your breaking point and how did you get over it? Um, I think the initial breaking point was when I realised what my sentence really was. That's when it really hit me. I thought to myself, hey, I, I don't deserve this. I can't be doing this sentence. And I used drugs to cope. Um, but I'd say, yeah, that was probably after a couple of years. In the beginning, I just, I didn't realise what my sentence really meant. I just thought you, you keep your head down and you go home. And when they're saying to me, want you to do this offending behaviour course or this one, um, and it's going to take this long, so many months, and that's going to take you up to this time. That, um, then I realised that I'm in this for the long haul. And that's when it hits you, especially when you don't know when you're going home. You mentioned that um, you'd, you'd working out uh, to try and get your stress level down. What facilities were available? What was your workout routine? Um, in most prisons, they do have good gyms. Um, they'll have like free weights, running machines, um, a lot of exercise bikes, um, like the skiing machine. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, skiing machine? Is that the one where you grab the things and the cables? Nah, like you grab hold of the things and you've got the you've got the leg bits as well and you've got like okay. forwards and backwards gotcha. I can't remember what it's called but yeah, yeah they've got they've got a lot of good equipment um, and when I when I first started training you know I started buying like all the muscle magazines muscle and fitness and stuff and I really got stuck into the gym um, I mean my kind of workout stuff was like I'd maybe do weights three or four times a week uh, maybe play football um, just for a bit of fitness um, and then do a bit of cardio and stuff. Um, so yeah, it was um, it, it was a good stress release going to the gym, but it, you get to a point where it's not enough anymore. It's not doing. It's not. It's not taking your mind off it enough, and you start using drugs, and then that all goes out the window. The the gym and everything goes out the window. So if um, you've got this constant stress then of not knowing when you're getting out, you're handling it with drugs. What motivated you to stop taking the drugs? Um, well, I, I, I kind of knew that that's what was holding me back. I knew that, you know, the drug thing was holding me back. If I didn't beat that, then I wouldn't be going home. Um, and then also family. You know, in the beginning, my family didn't know what was going on. Were they visiting you and stuff? My family used to visit a lot, yeah. Um, you know, my mum, like, you know, she used to visit all the time. You know, throughout all of my sentences, like, it's my mum who's the one who's been there, mm. you know. She's the one who's always coming to visit and stuff. And no matter what, like, she's always been there, you know. So, yeah, he's, um... Mm. And after you were sentenced, did you work your way down the security levels? Did you start in the highest and then go down? I didn't start in the highest. I started in Category, category B. Okay. Um, which was, well, which was Gartree that I went to. Gartree used to be a high-security prison. Um, but then they had a helicopter escape from there. A helicopter yeah, a escape? Yeah, helicopter escape. This was back in, I think, the <sighs> 90s or 80s, yeah. Do you know what happened there? Um, 
I don't remember the name of the guys, but I think there was uh, one guy he planned to break out and he'd, his friend had gone and hired a helicopter and he then took the guy hostage, made him land in the Garchi prison. So the guy who's supposed to be going jumped in, but then another guy who wanted to get out, he's just come and ran and jumped on and held on to the white records and they pulled him up, I think. So, yeah. A chancer. Yeah, mm. a chancer. But I think he got, there was two of them, I think, that got yeah. away with it, yeah. Wow. But, um, yeah, so then it lost its high security status because of they had an escape. If any of, if any of the maximum security prisons, if they have a, um, an escape, they lose their high security status. Mm. So, um, yeah, that, that, and they got dropped to a B-cat and that's where I spent most of my time. You Gartry. spent most of your time most in B-cat. Yeah, yeah. So that's like medium, upper medium security. Yeah, upper medium, yeah. Um, mm. I, I went to an open prison for about 10 months, mm -hmm. um, but I got caught with a mobile phone mm. and I got sent back to Gartree again. So I'd say probably 10 years I spent in Gartree. Are there a lot of mobile phones in prison? Oh, a hell of a lot. And do they come in through the guards and the visitors? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's mainly the guards who are bringing stuff in, you know? What's the price? Um, it depends what sort of phone. I mean, I don't know whether people have seen them on the internet, but you've got them, them like, uh, they're called beat the boss, beat the boss phones. Um, they're just pure, pla they're made of plastic. They've got no metal in them. So this boss chair that a lot of prisoners have got is they'll sit you down on it and it tests to see if you've got any metal up your ass or... Um, like anywhere on your body, I think. So, um, what was I speaking about again? Sorry. Phones, oh, phones, phones, sorry. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I mean, I had a, I had a phone. I had one little, they have like, my one actually had HMP written on it. Not just like in pen, it actually was HMP. And they, that's what they are designed for. They're designed for, you know, for prisons. And, uh, but you'd probably pay, in between 200 and 300 pound depends what prison you're in a lot of prisons have different prices um but even some people have got internet phones in there as well you know they have a big like s7 s8 or whatever so yeah people people in prison could be watching this so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you spent half your life in prison you know the ins and outs what would be your prison survival advice to a new person coming to prison um, my advice would be is just, you know, keep keep yourself to yourself. I mean, don't don't go putting yourself out there. I mean, don't get yourself in debt. Um, and I mean, you know, if you kind of stick to them rules, you you'll be okay. I mean, you know, don't don't go around sticking your chest out thinking that you're Charlie Big Spuds because you know you, you'll soon get put in your place. So yeah, that'd be my survival tips. Just keep you know just. I'm not saying don't talk to people, but just don't involve yourself in any of the silly bullshit that's going on. What about interacting with the guards? And what were the guards like? Um, yeah, a lot of the guards were scumbags, to tell you the truth. A lot of them were, um, you know, they'd, they'd have their little, they'd have their own little sets of inmates that they would, you know, like converse with and maybe get information from, um, you know, but... Mo I mean, most of the guards, the majority of the guards were okay. But then probably a third of them were complete arseholes. They weren't, they're not there for helping, you know, for the right reasons. They're there, you know, a lot of them are there for see how much money they can make, you know. And they think it's funny when, you know, maybe they'll set something up so another prisoner, something falls down on them. 
because they don't like them or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Did you get a chance to watch my interview with the prison guard? Yeah, I did. Yeah. What did you think of that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very... It's basically... Bad. I mean, obviously, you're looking at it from kind of his point of view, but, you know, it is... There's nothing in there that you can say, well, that's not true or whatever. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's on point. It's bang on. Um, and I mean, where, where that guard was uh, in Manchester, weren't it? You know, that's, that's got a catty unit there. So, um, so yeah, I mean, what he's saying is true. Yeah. Why did your sister contact me? How did that come about? Um, a friend of mine, um, had been reading your books, I think party time. And, um, he was saying to me about how good the book is and that. So I wasn't really that much big of a reader, but I said, let me have a read. And uh, yeah, after I read the first one, I couldn't put them down. I read the second one and then the third one. Um, so yeah, they're brilliant books. And if anyone hasn't read them, then, uh, <laughs> then you should go out and buy the book. There's a little uh, put in there for you. Did you then go uh, proceed to start writing about your own life after we communicated? Um, yeah, I mean... I basically asked you to kind of give me some advice on writing a book and stuff. And you sent me a, a book from Stephen King, like on writing, on writing. And, you know, so, um, now if I've anyone got, out there's watching this and they've got people in prison and they want to be writers, I recommend you send them that book on writing. By Stephen yeah. King. Yeah. It's a brilliant book. It's a very good book. I mean, I knew nothing about like kind of writing a book or whatever, but you know, it gave me a lot of good pointers and where to start from and stuff. And, so yeah, it's, um, I mean, and where the point I'm at now with my book is, you know, I've got some bits written down, but I haven't really got that much written down yet, but yeah. What have you written so far? What, what subjects? Um, I basically started uh, when I first went to prison. So I went back that as far. As a young offender? As a young offender. I mean, I didn't, I was going to start from, like from as far back that I, was, I could remember. But I thought I didn't want the book to be about more about my life. I wanted it to be about a period of my life, about like the prison side of things. Um, so I just started to write about the juvenile side of things. Um, but that's as far as I've got. How far back can you remember? Um, I can probably remember back to when I was about five. Right. Yeah. What's the earliest memories then? Um, my earliest memory is me falling off my bike and my sister running. My mum was in the back garden and uh, I was riding my bike, had stabilised on, but I fell off and I, quite, I must have really hurt. So I'm running down the path crying and my sister's saying, uh, it's gone up the creek because my mum always used to say, if something was wrong, like it's gone up the creek without a paddle. So, um, yeah, that's the earliest memory that I can remember. And where were you based then? I was in Peterborough. Yeah. Is, are your parents from Peterborough? My parents, um, well, my mum's family, my nan and granddad, they're Irish. They're from Donegal. But um, yeah, they were they were living in Peterborough when I was born, yeah. So what was it like for you growing up? Um, yeah, I had a very good childhood. You know, I wasn't wasn't beaten. I wasn't uh, like any, you know, my parents are really good parents. You know, they there was nothing that they did that was you know, that was bad. You know, everything they did, you can see that it was for kind of mine and my sister's benefit. You know, my, my mum, she would work sometimes two or three jobs, you know. She'd get up in the morning, go to a job, come home, go to a job in the afternoon. 
you know, and stuff like that. So she'd try her hardest to give us the best life that she could. My dad, he would work away quite a lot. What was your parents' jobs? Um, my dad, he was a carpenter, an engineer. Uh, my mum, she, she like did various jobs. She was cleaning. She worked at the school we went to in the kitchens. Um, so mainly cleaning, cleaning jobs. Yeah. Which school did you go and how did you do at school? Um, my primary school, I went to um, St. Thomas More. Uh, no problems whatsoever. Um, I then went to secondary school, which was St. John Fisher in Peterborough. And I was doing very well up until about year nine. So that year nine, that's about what, 13? About 13, just turned 14. Yeah. Um, but at that point, uh, I had a head injury. What's, what caused the head injury? Um, I was riding a push bike and near where I lived, they, they was doing a bit of building work. Um, but I'd rid through there as a shortcut. Uh, where they was building, they was knocking down um, that old washing line thing. So you've got like them concrete posts. So I was riding the bike, not looking where I'm going. And I was looking to my left. And as I turned to my right, I rid straight into the post. Mm. So, you know, I really, I don't know whether you can see there that got that scar down there. Yeah. 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 And then like here as well. Yeah. But I had quite a lot of stitches and stuff. And I mean, after that, kind of my behaviour started to change. Mm. Um, I've had um, tests and that done because they thought maybe I had frontal lobe damage, mm -hmm. which, you know, if anyone doesn't really know about that sort of thing, it's that sort of what controls your personality and stuff like that. And But, I, you know, I even noticed it in myself that I was, I became a lot more um, aggressive, a lot more like, uh, not patient, a very impulsive. Um Ended up getting in a few fights at school. Ended up not wanting to go to school. Ended up skiving off school. And then in the end, just... Um, I can't remember if I was excluded for a little while and just didn't go back. And then I ended up going to prison when I was 15. So, yeah. But my school experience, you know, I was I did well at school. Um, up until that point, you know, I was in all the top classes. Um, I mean, in the prison, I've... Uh, I've got a lot of my qualifications from in the prison, painting and decorating. What courses were available and what qualifications? Um, in the prison, there was quite a lot of stuff for education. I mean, I got my level two in English and maths, which is probably about, I don't know, about a C or something in the GCSE. Um, I've done business studies, um, painting and decorating. Um, I did a bit of Spanish. Um I did that one just for something that I wanted to learn another language. Yeah. And they did Spanish and German, but I did German at school and I don't, I thought I'd rather do Spanish. And yeah. at one point I was quite fluent. I could like say my name and say a lot of stuff. And, but now I, I think I'd struggle. <laughs> I think I'd struggle now. But when you're not using it on a, like a daily basis or often, you soon, you soon forget a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, they had a lot of courses, a lot of, I mean, you could even do distance learning. You know, if you wanted to get a degree, you could go for a degree. But I just never went down that route. I didn't, you know, I never had the kind of patience to stick with something. So I had to do something that was quite, I I um, enjoyed the painting and decorating. And were any of the staff positive role models or influences on you? Um, yeah, I, there was a couple. There was a couple. What's I mean, their stories? Um my personal officer, who was uh, Dave, Dave Corrigan, 
he was an, he was an officer in in Gartry, and you know he he was there for the right reasons. You know he was my personal officer when I first went there. Um, he'd come out on visits to speak to my family, and you know he even gave me the address of some solicitors to write to about the IPP. Um, so yeah, I mean he was just a down to earth guy. You know he he treated like a human being. Um, you know, he wasn't. He didn't get himself involved in any of the bullshit, like bringing stuff in and stuff like that. And you know, he was there for the right reasons. Yeah. And the these solicitors were they instrumental in you finally getting your release? Um, these solicitors weren't, but um, I went for um, I went for an appeal. Um, and basically, they wanted to use the the argument that about the head injury, they basically said because that wasn't uh, given to the judge at the time, he may have uh, because if you've got the frontal load damage, they say that a lot of the stuff you're not. It's like you should be dealt with with diminished responsibility um, and maybe given a lesser sentence. But then on the same side, they said, well, uh, if that is true, then that maybe does mean that you are you're more dangerous because. If you're not in control of yourself, or you know, if you've got a damage and then you're doing things impulsively, um, so in the end we didn't go through with that. Mm. Um, but there was a lady um, who my sister found, in fact, and uh, she works with um, Wells and Berkham or Berkham. I can never know which way it goes round. Um, but yeah, she was brilliant. I mean, she on my first parole hearing, she got me out out of prison, straight out, wow, straight out, wrong? yeah. Um, sorry, sorry. Well, what's that like? Going to a parole hearing? Oh, going on a parole hearing. Um, I mean, every time I've gone on a parole hearing, it's always nerve wracking. Always, even after like after the first time. Is it every year? Um, it is normally every year. Um, but sometimes it's maybe it depends like what stuff you got to do. If you've got any courses left to do or anything, then um, say for instance that you've got a course left that they know is going to take 18 months they'll probably knock you back for two years um, but my first few pro hearings I got knocked back for two years two years two years two years and then um, but yeah my first pro hearing she she came in and she got me out and you know again my sister found her on the internet um, so yeah and how long was it after that parole hearing that you actually got released um, it was about three weeks later um, so you knew you were going to get out I knew weeks. I was going home how did that feel uh, in the beginning like it was it was it was great but then as time went on because it shouldn't have taken so long I should have been released within a couple of days but because there was a problem with the paperwork something hadn't the eyes hadn't been dotted and the T's hadn't been crossed or something like that so um, yeah after a couple of weeks I was starting to get I was thinking to myself you know has something gone wrong you know are they going to come to my door and say you know, actually, you're not going home, you know. And for me, that would be like, that would be hell, you know. But the waiting, that, that three months was, a three sorry, three weeks, that was that was a long time. That was a bloody long time. A long three weeks. That was a long three weeks, it was. And yeah. what was the day of your release like? Ah, brilliant. I mean, the night before, I didn't sleep. You know, I was up all night, didn't get a wink of sleep. Um, and then my sister and mum came to pick me up the next morning. So, yeah, I, I got out of prison at about half ten. Um, so, yeah, my sister drove us home. And, yeah, it was it was great. It was finally, 
that weight's been lifted off your shoulders. You know, I'm, I'm free, but for the first maybe a couple of months, I didn't even want to close my eyes at night time because I was thinking to myself, this is a dream. That's how bad it was. And like, I was, yeah, I didn't want to close my eyes. But um, I've had a few dreams about being back in prison as well. And I'm, I'm waking up like, oh, please not. But yeah. How many years ago was it you got released? Um, 2017 November so it's about a year and fresh. a half yeah about did, a year you, and did half. you have a post release plan um, I did sort of I mean because things were I was because normally they'll do things when they like bring you down slowly through the categories like B, C, D they normally do them things when you're in open prison they'll do like your release plan and stuff but I didn't really have one in place because when I was released it was like I'm being released from a BCAT prison, which is, is quite unusual, but it's happening quite a lot more with IPPs, especially, especially those of us who are years over tariff. It doesn't matter what prison you're in, you know, they think you should be out and you're not a risk to the public, then you should be out. So, yeah. And did you able to get a job or anything? Um, at the minute, no. I mean, I've looked into, I'm trying to do some part-time college courses. Um, I want to, carry on with the painting and decorating so if anyone's watching this in Peterborough and they need someone to do some painting yeah, and decorating here. can I'm they here. get in touch with yeah, you I'm here, yeah even though I ain't got the qualification I'm a good, I'm a good painter I'm a good painter so yeah. yeah it'd be nice you know um, uh, you know my probation officer she's looking into kind of you know is there anyone out there who could maybe take me on and like sort of do like not an apprenticeship but like you know just give me some sort of part-time work whilst I'm doing a college course so she says you're going to look into that so hopefully hopefully that comes uh, into fruition a lot of people get out and re-offend mm-hmm. have there been any temptations so, no there hasn't been none whatsoever I mean what's keeping you strong versus the average person I think just knowing what I've done already and I don't want to go back to that you know, I, I think to myself, I did long enough as it is, you know. You know, uh, you know, my mum's getting older, you know, so stuff like that, you know, I don't want to, I would, it would kill me if I was in prison and like my mum died or, you know, my dad or something. So, so yeah, that's what keeps me strong. And also, I mean, I, I've grown up a hell of a lot. I don't think about wanting to commit crime and doing this and, you know, I, I actually do care. I don't want to go back to prison. I don't want to cause any more victims. You know, there's there's many reasons why not. But you know, I think more. I think more about people's the consequences of things and how it affects other people, like the stuff that I've done. So yeah, I mean, looking back on it now, you know, the taxi driver that must have been a horrible ordeal for him because he's just sat there minding his own business, and then along I come and do what I do, and you know, it's not it's not on. But me back then, that was the young stupid me who was impulsive and, you know, did stupid things that ended up with, you know, seriously hurting somebody. But now I'm just not on, I'm not on that thinking pattern, you know. So you've changed that thinking pattern. Yeah. What other lessons did the whole experience teach you? Um, mainly just that, Sean, I mean, you know, my nan died whilst I was in prison. Mm. So that was a big thing for me, you know. Um, and just knowing that I'm 34 now, you know, I'm starting at the bottom of the ladder. 
and you know I'm doing things now what I should have been doing in my twenties, you know, trying to get on a career ladder or something of that nature, and you know, so I'm starting. I, I'm a late starter, but that you know I won't let that hold me back. I don't think you know I'm too old to do this or I'm too old to do that. You know, if I want to do something, you know, if someone wants to do something that badly, then you know you can do it. So that would be my advice to anybody you know who, you know, don't ever think that it's too late. Because it's not. I mean, I'm not. I'm not that old, but I'm saying that, you know, even if you know you're in your thirties like I am, it's never too late. You can always change your life, or you can always do what you dream of doing. So yeah. Having spent half of your life in prison, are there any characteristics that you picked up that you've taken into the real world? For example, to this day, I prefer to sit with my back against the wall in a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. There's stuff like that. I mean. Um, I mean, in, in the house at night time, I mean, if I hear a noise or anything, I'm I'm up and I'm and I'm I'm going to check out what the noise was. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I do is, this might sound strange, but the front and back door, I basically put D locks on the lock. So like I'll put like you you'll have like your D lock and then the bit that attached to the bike, I'll put that over the lock, and I'll put it in such a position that you can't open the door and I'll put that on the back door. Um, but yeah, when I first went home, um, I was very nervous because you know that in that cell, you're in a cell, no one's going to break in, no, nothing's going to happen. But, you know, when you're at home, you know, there's no bars on the windows, there's no steel doors, you know, so, um, yeah, I, I was nervous in that sense. Um, but yeah, any other characteristics? Um, yeah, things like that, Sean, like not wanting to, you know, find it difficult to not be able to see the whole room. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I'd say that's only the only real characteristic that I've took home from, from prison. Another thing is like people walking close behind me. I don't like that. You know, that's another thing, but... So if you're out and so say somewhere like London, we got all those oh, people yeah, yeah. crowding I, around yeah. you, on like the way on the way here, here today. Yeah. On the way here, How I did that was constantly you? like this, like yeah, constantly looking over my shoulder. But um, you know, it, 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 hopefully, it's a characteristic that over time, you know, will leave me. But yeah, because when I'm walking in the streets, sometimes my mum or whatever, she'd be like, "Stop it!" Because I'm constantly if I hear a noise, I'm constantly like looking or you know, thinking that everyone's acting dodgy. That's another thing, like I just constantly look at someone and think, you know, or if I'm out walking late at night or whatever and you see someone, I, I'm, I'm on my mind straight away that I've got to watch them because they might be doing, you know, they might be up to something. It's not rational, but in your head, you still live in, in that prison life a bit, yeah. Do you have fears of getting rearrested for yeah, something definitely. accidental yeah. or trivial? Yeah, definitely. Or, re or even being set up for something. I mean, it's not, I mean, I don't think the police in Peterborough hate me that much, but, you know, things like that do happen. But being a, yeah, being arrested for something trivial or, you know, because on the IPP that, you know, so even something trivial can be straight back to prison. So you're on an IPP kind yeah. of probation parole thing now. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Um, I have to see my probation officer once a month now. When I first got out, it was, I, had, I was on a tag, a, GS, a GPS tag. Um, so now uh, I see her once a month it was once a week but it's gone down um, I have to go to 
like the drug place in Peterborough. I do like something there once a week. It's like a piss little test. piss test and stuff like that. Uh, I do a little group there as well. What do you mean you do a group? Um, it, it's basically, it's called some, something of change and it goes over a lot of stuff I've already learned in prison. Uh, some of the courses I've already done. Um, but it's basically just getting you to look at your triggers um, and just, just trying to give you information, just getting people to talk about you know, if you want to get anything off your chest or whatever. But, um, you find that helpful? Yeah, I mean, it is helpful, but at the same time, you're around people who are, a lot of people are using. So you sat there and you're trying to be there for the right reason, but someone's next to you talking about when we leave, we'll go and score. And you're thinking in the back of your mind, like, I don't want to be around that. You know, I'm trying my hardest to stay away from that. But then again, you can't control what other people are doing or what they're saying. So it's just about being strong and, not letting that affect you. So you have to analyse what your triggers are. Um, I mean, I know my triggers are, you know, if I'm feeling down or depressed, um, or something. Even even just having money can be a trigger. You know, you've got money in your pocket, you ain't got no bills to pay. You know, you've got your spare money. What you're going to do with it? And it's or a trigger could be someone sends you a message, or someone rings you, or so you see someone in the street. So I'm constantly on guard about that. Um, it's, it's exhausting sometimes because you're constantly having to analyse stuff and try and look at things 10 steps ahead. So you're looking at this now and thinking, all right, where could this lead? You know. So yeah, it can be exhausting, but it's got to be done. What it's about nightmares, flashbacks? Um, I mean, I, I have had nightmares since I've been out about being back in prison. Um, I had a real funny nightmare a few months ago where I was in prison and uh, somebody had died. Now, the way that they died was they had a sunbed in their cell and uh, they basically cooked themselves on the sunbed. And you know, it was a strange dream, but I was trying to analyse it, thinking, like, what does that mean? And, yeah, it was a strange one. Did you come across many people who died in prison? Um I, yeah, I mean, especially with the IPP lads, there's been quite a lot of suicides and stuff, and you know, the pills or hot shots or hanging, um, slashing the wrists. A lot of them are slashing the wrists. Um, one lad sat on a chair, put a plastic bag around his head, taped it up, and just suffocated himself. Yeah, you know, it's um, some people get to that point where they just they've had enough and they don't know what else to do. They're asking for help. That's you know that's one of the bad things about the prison system is that the help isn't there. They haven't got enough staff. They haven't got resources to you know to be watching people all the time or helping everybody. But at the same time, you can't be locking people up and then you know not offering them the help that they need. You know, so um, yeah, I mean, there was a good friend of mine who um, he killed himself. He slashed his neck. Oh, slashed his wrists what a way yeah you know and when I first got in Gartry actually there was one lad on my spur on my landing he'd um, cut his neck and wrists and everything and about half five in the morning they come round to check just make sure everyone's right and I've heard the female guard open the flap and scream mm. and she's gone oh my god and I, and I thought to myself something bad's happened mm. come out in the morning they've got that black thing around their door so like like a curtain so no one can no one can see. So yeah, it's um, it's not nice. It's not nice, especially when you know that person. 
Mm. You know, I bet you've, you, you know, you've probably. Well, half the main characters in Party Time are dead now, the yeah. male ones. Yeah. Just lost another guy. Yeah. Um, a couple of days ago, actually, his heart went. He was in his early 50s. Yeah. What do you think the government should do about indeterminate sentences? Um, well, I think, you know, the short-term answer would be um, to base, basically, you know, either transfer everyone's sentences to determinate sentences or just, if you're over tariff, just let the person out. I mean, unless you're, unless you're showing clear signs of being a danger to the public, like if you are stabbing people or you're causing like if you're being if you're being violent I can understand then you know but then again you've got to get to a point where what do you do with these people you know I, I mean I, I don't think I've got the answer for it uh, but I don't think the government they don't know what to do They, I think they if they cancelled everyone's sentences there'd be a hell of a lot of claims going in so I think that when you say claims what do you mean? Um, people putting in for um Oh, what's the word for it again? Suing or... Yeah, like suing the government um, for being over tariff for that long and not offering them, you know, the resources. There's no point in locking someone up and saying, right, you've got to do A, what, X, Y, and Z, but we only offer B. We don't offer any of these. So now you've got to go to another prison to do B and you've got to go to another prison to do X and it takes up a lot of time. And I probably spent eight, nine years bouncing from waiting to do this course and that course on, yeah, so it's, um, you know, I I'm, I don't know what the government should do, to be honest, but I think, you know, they've got to look at it seriously and say, right, what are we going to do with these lads? You know, put them on determinate sentences at least, you know, and if, if they're not causing, you know, if they're not being violent and they're not, if they're clearly not a risk to the public, then let them out, you know. Pepsi Watson has been on the podcast. He's yeah. doing some campaigning. Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Have you had any communication with him? Um, I've I've had sent him a couple of messages on the comments and stuff, um, and I was saying to him like I'd like to get involved in you know what he's doing and you know because he's got a good message there. You know he he's you know he knows what he wants to do and you know he's um he's starting to do it. You know he's only he started up his own channel recently at Crime and Justice. You know if anyone's not subscribed, you should subscribe. Or at least have a look. Um, so yeah, yeah, he's um, you know, he's he's going, he's trying to push things in the right direction, and you need people like him, you know, and like yourself, Sean, to, you know, push people, you know, find out, you know, why you're not doing this, you know, you need to be changing this and stuff. So yeah, how did you find out about the big American prison channels like Big Herc? Um, just, just going like flicking through like Facebook and not Facebook, um, YouTube. Um, I mean, I'm subscribed to Big Herc, you know, his, uh, uh is it 20, 23 and one? 23 and one lockdown. 23 and one lockdown. Yeah. Uh, Shout out to him. Yeah. And what's the other, uh, the other guy? The Penn biggest is one is the after prison show, Joe okay. Guillermo. No, I haven't. Not subscribed He's got to one. well over a million subscribers. Wow. And he got out of prison. He wrote to me from prison and he got out of prison and within two years he had over a million subscribers. Wow. He's doing well. He's doing really yeah, good. Yeah, he needs to give me some pointers. I'll start me on channel up. Give me some pointers in the comments, please. <laughs> and out, out of those um, American channels, mm -hmm. what's the stuff that's caught your attention the most? Apart from cheek busting. <laughs> busting. Yeah, big hurts. Killing out of busting cheeks. Wow. Wig splitting. Yeah, wig splitting. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think everyone's jumped on that now, haven't they? The wig splitting and the cheek busting. Yeah. Yeah. He's got t-shirts of it on. Yeah. <laughs> I might try and get one of them t-shirts. Like I'm a wig splitter and a cheek buster. <laughs> Professional. I get paid for it. <laughs> but yeah, he's... Um, the one... Uh, I think, I'm think i trying to think of the guy's... What his channel's called. It's something about pen, life after the pen. No, that, that's, that's Big Herc. Uh, there's another guy fresh he's from out. Florida fresh, fresh out I think there's, um, there's OG Badger OG Badger I'm subscribed to him as well yeah he's yeah, a good he's dude good and stuff, then there's yeah. the guy I think it's Brian out of um, f- he was in Florida I think he might that's have moved him. out of California yeah, yeah that's the one yeah. yeah they're the ones I'm subscribed to but um, yeah it's um, it's just a different content yeah it's nice it's like it's interesting to hear about what's going on over there how they do things you know how different does it seem Watching the US experience versus what you've been through? It seems very different. Things that seem totally different. You know, like you were saying to me about with the... Um, I, you might not be saying to me, I think... The, I was, raci- the racial drug gangs. The, the racial, Aryan yeah, the racial, yeah, all that Blacks, stuff there. The Mexicans, yeah. Mexican Over here, Americans. it's not like race-based. It's A lot of it's like area-based, where you're from. Um, you know, you have Asians, Blacks, Whites, all mixing together. There's no sort of... Don't get me wrong, there are racists in the prisons, but... There's not like that clear barriers. There's no clear barriers. It's a lot more informal. Yeah. So if you're going to start your own YouTube channel, what would you talk about? I think just giving people pointers on, you know, uh, what prison's really like and, you know, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And just giving my experience of what I've been through in life, trying to give people pointers, you know, to not go down the road that I went down. Um, because sometimes, you know, all, you know, even if you change one person's like, you know, life, then you've, you've done something at least. I mean, I'd, I'd like to give something back now instead of, you know, I've took so much and now I'd like to give something back. But yeah, I would like to, you know, I would like to maybe look into doing something like that because it is, you know, as I can see with Pepsi as well, like, you know, he's, I'd have to do something where it's clear. I want to just do like, bits of this and that I'd want to do something clear defined like what I'm doing but um, yeah I'd have to sit down and think like what what I would sort of do yeah well we've talked today about what prison was really like for you is there anything that we think we've left out for the viewers that you would still like to talk about not that I can think of sure no no and where do you think your life is going to go from here Uh, you know the, the sky's the limit you know, you can, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, if you really want it, then where there's a will, there's a way. And I think, you know, when I first got out, like for about the first year, I was very, I got into a bit of a slump where, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't working, I wasn't doing anything really. And, you know, then I find myself where I'm waking up in the morning and thinking, I don't want to get out of bed today. But um, I think that's just because I got like that in prison a lot. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning, I'd be like, I don't want to get out of bed today. It was very depressing. And, you know, I thought all of that stuff would leave me when I left the prison. But I found out that I'm still getting bounce of it. But, you know, I think that that's, that's to be expected. I think, you know, it's going to take time to, you know, get back on the right track. But, you know, I can, you know, I can see, I'd love to be married and have, you know, I want to have children and, you know, maybe look into some sort of career. Uh, you know, obviously it's a lot more difficult when you've got a criminal record and stuff, but, you know, if you if you really want something that badly, then 
you'll go for it. You mentioned your exercise routine earlier. Are you doing any fitness stuff these days? Um, I do a bit of running now and again, but as in like, uh, I mean, I fractured my my hand. How? Uh, silly little, yeah, I punched something. You punched I something? I punched something, yeah. Not somebody, something. Did I you punched. have prison rage? Um, I to tell you the truth, I don't even know what it was. I think I just had a, a build-up of emotions. And where I've been trying to hold it down a lot out here, especially where I'm at my mum's, you know, I try and keep as much of her as I can, you know. But, um, yeah, I got upset about something one day and my mum's got like a little shoe chair. It's leather, but it's got like a wooden base. And as I've, I've like punched downwards and I fractured it like here. What uh, was it that upset you? Um... Off the top of my head, I can't think, but I know it was just a build-up of a build-up of emotions. Um, I think it was either I'd had an argument with my sister, um, and that was kind of a twig that like snapped. Um, but yeah, but then I regretted it because even now it's I get like a tingling sensation in it a lot, and it's definitely not healed properly. I had a little cast on it, but um, when I touch it like this, you can feel like that electric shock. Um, but yeah, so I haven't really been able to do weights or anything because of that, but it's no excuse. I mean, beforehand I wasn't, um, going to the gym anyway or doing weights, but yeah, it's something that I do want to do. I do want to do, but I'm more interested in like fitness and stuff nowadays instead of walking on a big chest and like big hurts, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, that's what I'd like to do. Outside of the argument with your sister, what's your relationship like with your mum and your sister these days? My mum, like, I have a brilliant relationship with my mum. Is, is your dad there as well? No, my dad's not there. Okay. Him and my, my mum and mum split up, but he, um, I'm meeting him today after. Oh, really? I left today, yeah. Wow. I'm going to see him at King's Cross. Okay. So I'll um, spend a bit of time with him. That's good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, my relationship with my mum is, is, is great. With my sister, it's up and down. Like, we do argue a bit here and there. But then again, it's siblings. It's like a sibling rivalry sort of thing. It's, yeah. you know, me and my sister can't be together for more than about an hour because then, you know, it's, it's just the silly little things that get said. And then, but yeah, but I love my sister, you know. She's my sister and, you know, no matter how much I argue with her, you know, she's my family, so. They had your back. They visited you. Exactly. They're they, the ones they were like were a there. lifeline yeah, exactly. all the time. You know, they're the, yeah, exactly. You know, and I've got to, you know, say a lot of my friends as well that, um, they came and did a protest outside Gartree Prison about six months before I got out. You know, there was about 20 of my old friends there and my sister, my sister arranged it and stuff. So, you know, and that was to do with, there was supposed to be a few, um, uh, what's it called? What my sister was doing outside Gartree Prison. Protesting. Protests. I don't know what's wrong with my brain today. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was supposed to be quite a few protests around the country, um, but yeah, they've been there from the beginning, Sean. So yeah. So based on your experience, for a young person who's tempting to get into like a drug gang mm. or to carry a knife around, what what would you say to th- those people? I mean, with the knife, I mean, I, I know a lot of people carry a knife because they think it's going to be for protection. But I mean, my advice would just be to. You know, if you if you if you're in a position where you feel you're having to change, have to carry a knife, then look at why you want it. You know why the reason is. You know if it is because of who you're hanging around with, or 
you know, who they've got beef with or whatever, then, you know, change that scenario, you know, stay away from them people because at the end of the day, you're going to get them for a murder at some point or whatever and I guarantee you that those people won't be there while she'll be in prison. You know, it's going to come down to your family again. Yeah. You know, so, and I'm not saying that, like, without experience, I've seen it, you know. Most people in prison, most of their friends, and it's family, it always seems to be family. You know, it's your family, Every you know, your family stick by you. Um, uh, but, I mean, with the drug thing, I mean, I know it's like a cliche, but it's that easy. Just say, just say no. Yeah. Like I know it's very easy. Like people might smoke a bit of weed or whatever when they're young, and it's and it snowballs from there. But you know, my advice would be is just, you know, just just don't don't be tempted. Don't do things because you feel that you've got that peer pressure or whatever. Um, so yeah, that would be my advice. Do you have a final message, Sean, for people watching this, or is there any ways anyone watching this can help you? Um, I mean, my final message would be, you know, I'm just, I'm grateful that you've had me down here today, and you know, um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to say. It's all right. Yeah, I don't really know what to say. I mean, yeah, my final message would just be, you know. Do what you know. If you've got dreams and aspirations and stuff, then go for it. You know, don't hold back because, you know, don't keep making excuses for stuff, you know, because I do it myself. Like, I'll say, oh, I can't do that because of this and that, but just go for it. You know, if you've got dreams and aspirations, don't leave it till you're my age or don't, you know, don't, you know, get involved in stuff that I got involved in when I was young and end up in the same situation that I did because you'll get to a point in life where you realise that, you've made a mistake and what you've done isn't big and hard. You just make sure a, a fool, basically, in my eyes. That's the way I see myself as everything that I've done. I'm just more stupid for doing it, you know? So, but then again, you know, that's in hindsight and, you know, so I can only give advice on looking in hindsight. Well, look, Sean, we appreciate you coming down yeah, today and much. having the courage to show your story. And to all the people who've watched this today, whatever lessons thoughts you've got on the video please put them in the comment section and let us know if you've got any questions or if anyone out there can help sean it was up in peterborough we really appreciate that and um give us, give us a hug yeah. yeah thank Cheers. you very much